It's incredible to think about, but just one element makes up 90% of all the atoms in the entire visible universe. This same element has the potential to become a virtually unlimited source of fuel. And with no greenhouse trap and gas emissions, such as carbon, as a byproduct. We're talking about hydrogen. And for decades, scientists and engineers have sought ways to convert hydrogen into a cost-effective and pollution-free energy source. But harnessing its full potential proved to be problematic. That is, until now. So what's different today for hydrogen? Could it really be the answer to the world's rapidly growing energy needs? Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Merrill Perspectives Podcast. I'm Candace Browning, head of B of A Global Research. In today's show, we're exploring the future of hydrogen power. We'll look at what makes it so unique in its potential to completely revolutionize the energy industry. We'll explore the ways it could become a part of our daily lives. And we'll touch on the promise it holds to help solve the planet's climate crisis. Joining me for this conversation are Chris Heisey, Chief Investment Officer for Merrill and Bank of America Private Bank. Hi, Candace. And Jun Ho Lee, a Director in Equity Research and Asia Pacific Coordinator of Electric Vehicle Battery Research for B of A Global Research. Hi, Candace. Good to be with you. So, Jun Ho, I'd like to start with you. You and several other analysts on our research team have published what I think is a truly groundbreaking report on hydrogen, or more specifically, green hydrogen, and why it could be the answer to the world's energy needs. So, Jenho, what is it that makes hydrogen so unique as a fuel source? And then how exactly does it get converted into energy? I don't really understand that. I think it involves something called an electrolyzer. That's right, Candice. Let's step back and talk about what makes hydrogen unique. It is a virtually unlimited green source of energy. But just because hydrogen is all around us doesn't mean that it's free or easy to harvest. What's changing is that we are reaching a pivotal moment when economics and technologies are making it feasible for us to efficiently harness this energy and environmental awareness is making government interested to do so. So coming back to your question about how hydrogen is converted to energy, hydrogen provides 4% of our global energy today, but most of this is not green. Instead, it is brown or gray hydrogen extracted using fossil fuels such as coal or natural gas. To tackle climate change, we need green hydrogen, which is hydrogen extracted using renewable energy through the process of water electrolysis. In electrolysis, Water is split into hydrogen and oxygen using electricity generated from renewable power, like a solar or wind power. That process emits no heat-trapping greenhouse gases and is proving more cost-effective now than in the past. So, Junho, why is it becoming more cost-effective? What's changed? Because of technology developed, the electrolyzer used to be still expensive, but not much uh, cheaper than before. Okay. So, Junho, just how large a market do you think hydrogen could ultimately represent? We estimate around $11 trillion in infrastructure investment opportunities should arise over the next 30 years. 
Wow. So Chris, I'd like to bring you in here. I mean, obviously the idea of a hydrogen economy could have a huge effect on other big trends we're following, like smart cities and the smart grid. Where do you see hydrogen having the biggest knock-on effects? And what do you think it might take to build out the infrastructure for a hydrogen-based economy? So there's a number of different ways to take a look at hydrogen, its usage, its infrastructure today and then in the years ahead. The first thing is smart cities and a smart grid. Now, we all know that number one that we have seen through the pandemic and even before the pandemic, there's been an acceleration of many new themes, one of which is e-everything. And we like to say e-everything crosses across not just gaming and e-learning, but certainly eventually it'll be the production of public transportation. It'll be the production of the use of a new grid. And again, the build out of smart cities. As that happens, the need for broadband is gonna rise exponentially, even more than it is today. And it, we estimate that in the next five to 10 years, electricity consumption is gonna follow on this in an exponential way. So the need for smart everything, especially infrastructure, is at the top of the list of a build out. The climate and the environment Green initiatives are at the top of the list of almost every government, and that's obviously going to rise. And it's starting in Europe, in Japan, in South Korea, ultimately in the United States in a more assertive way. And last but not least, consumption. The efficiency of consumption is going to rise, in our opinion. And the consistency of power. If you're going to need more broadband, if you're going to need an expansion of the grid, you're going to need a consistent grid and that's where you get a more effective distribution. And that's where hydrogen sits at the heart of as well. Okay, well, let's dig down into one of the areas that you focused on, Chris, which is transportation. And John Ho, I'd like to particularly look at cars. So I understand that hydrogen fuel cells could revolutionize the passenger vehicle market. Can you tell us, you know, what's happening there? Could hydrogen fuel cell powered cars eventually overtake battery powered electric vehicles? That's a great question, Candice. The key reasons why hydrogen fuel cell vehicles are becoming interesting now are they offer three major functional advantages over battery electric vehicle. Longer driving range and faster charging time and environmental benefits. In terms of longer driving ranges, Hydrogen fuel cells energy density is higher than that of current state-of-the-art lithium-ion battery. This allows fuel cell EVs to travel up to 650 kilometers on a single charge, while battery EVs can only travel around 400 kilometers on a single charge now. Second, faster charging time. Fuel cell EVs can be easily and fully refueled in just three to five minutes, much like filling cars with gas or diesel at the gas station. In contrast, charging battery EVs may take an hour to more than four hours. Perhaps most importantly, on the environmental front, heavy-duty trucks roughly constitute 3% of total global autos on the road, but they account for about 25% of the total on-road carbon dioxide emissions. If we can replace traditional or battery vehicles with hydrogen fuel cell EVs, that emit no tailpipe emissions, the impact would be tremendous. So Junho, this all sounds almost too good to be true. Are there any safety concerns or risks associated with hydrogen fuel cell technology? And how are those risks being mitigated? 
There is a public concern of safety in using highly flammable gas, which is hydrogen. So there's a lot of efforts being made by the chemical company to produce those uh, material like a carbon fiber to protect the storage tank to prevent any safety and explosion issues. So Chris, I want to come back to you and talk a little bit about the challenges of climate change. And we know that the sheer costs associated with it are just enormous and obviously growing day by day. But what do you think it could potentially mean for the global economy if we could finally turn the corner on climate change? And could that be an incentive for industry and governments to commit lots of investment dollars to hydrogen technologies? Yes, Candace, the first opportunity is we need to change this equation from a climate change, climate destruction issue to a climate solution issue. And once you do that, that's how you bring in the private side of the equation. That's how you bring in and widen out the investment opportunity set. And that's how you ultimately increase the available investment dollars within the hydrogen technological development equation and the hydrogen economy. So we think that's number one. We need to change this issue from a climate change, climate destruction issue, which is very real, to what are the climate solutions out there to combat the problem? And hydrogen squarely sits at the top of that list. As you do that, the need and the use and the demand for renewables goes up. So it's not just hydrogen, it's the areas around it. And then as investment dollars go up in those areas, you get the benefits of it in the broader society through obviously the lower production of greenhouse gas emissions, et cetera. Governments are spending enormous amounts of money on combating issues that climate change itself creates, whether it is what's happening out in the western part of the United States, floods, fires, destruction of arable land, et cetera. All of this is where the governments have to spend dollars to clean up, if you will, what climate change produces. And if we could change that equation and take those dollars to reinvest in climate solutions, that absolutely changes the game. And Jun Ho, Chris has just talked about the fact that it's going to take collaboration and partnership among a number of stakeholders, including industry, governments, investors, to make the hydrogen economy a reality. So what do you think needs to happen to bring all these stakeholders together? And what are the potential roadblocks? Sure, there are still potential issues for further widespread adoption of green hydrogen, chief of which is the cost. Given hydrogen cost is seven times more expensive than fossil fuel now. In this regard, we believe the public policy will continue to play a key role. Support measures may include carbon tax or cross-border carbon adjustment. Several national and cross-region policy initiatives are being launched to stimulate both supply-side expansion of the green hydrogen economy and identify new applications that can use the fuel, including a new European Green Deal announced in July this year. It aims to reach a 100% carbon-free economy between now and 2050, which we think is the game changer that could create an enormous source of future demand. Most of the actions planned in this Green Deal are focusing on the installation and the use of electrolysis to produce green hydrogen in Europe. This is certainly giving companies and all stakeholders the incentive to commit capital and R&D to bring costs down and develop new infrastructure 
that could serve hydrogen-based systems. So Chris, you've talked a lot about private-public partnerships as one way to help energize these kinds of new initiatives and technologies. You know, is there a role for those kind of private-public partnerships with green hydrogen? Yeah, Candice, that's an excellent way to kind of describe this whole equation, you know, energize these sorts of new initiatives and technology. Now, what if we looked at hydrogen and renewables and sustainability in a different way in the next decade? What if we looked at private-public partnerships to create a whole new infrastructure where perhaps hydrogen is one element, no pun intended, that actually sat at the core of all this, where you create an infrastructure redevelopment bill, whether it's global, European Union, the UK, United States or Asia, or a combined basis where you commit to a full-fledged new infrastructure. This is where demand, supply, and production, that triangle, all converge. So as cost comes down to produce hydrogen for use, whether it's retail or institutional usage, in transportation, in industrial, whatever it may be, that's where demand, as we know it today, actually continues to rise. And if that happens as costs go down, that's where the public-private partnership equation really produces an ROI, a return on investment, that is much higher than previous private-public partnerships. So, Chris, let's follow up on that and talk about how investors could get involved in this theme. I mean, hydrogen is clearly going to take many years to play out, but it could be a theme worth considering, especially for listeners who are interested in sustainable investment opportunities. So where do you see hydrogen fitting into that sustainable investment landscape? Yeah, Candice, I think first the drawback here is that investors want to immediately begin to invest in the beneficiaries of a change to normal day life or the production of energy for how energy was produced before, and then that change potentially to a hydrogen-based renewable. The problem with that is, is the investable opportunity set is very narrow. The beneficiaries are years and years out. So you have to look at the blockers. And the blockers are the areas that are currently producing the current energy sources and how do you change that equation to more renewable we're already seeing it in renewable energy solar wind fuel cell technology those areas so you start with renewables that are already in place that's an opportunity set that should widen out then you start to think about what's the next use as that cost curve comes down and that demand goes up that's transportation through the use of fuel cell technology so that should also expand in our opinion and then finally, as you get later into a much longer decade and usage and build out of infrastructure, you have to look at who the ultimate beneficiaries are. And that clearly, clearly is the industrial use as well. So it's renewables, the expansion thereof. Secondarily, it's the transportation benefits. Third, it is the infrastructure for the use by industry and ultimately an entire new power grid system. Those are the areas that investors should be looking towards in the years ahead. Thanks for that, Chris. And so, Junho and Chris, I think this has been a truly fascinating conversation. And I just would like to end with some of your thoughts on, you know, what we've been discussing and how could it shape the future in five, 
or 10 or more years. And could that future include achieving a net zero emissions global economy in our lifetimes? So, Jenho, let's start with you. Sure. Although we are currently forecasting hydrogen to come for about a quarter of the global energy consumption by 2050 from a 4% now, the process may well develop faster than this on the back of continued tech breakthrough and the strong government initiatives. While we expect the hydrogen use to reduce carbon emission by one-third by 2050, remember this is only one part of the clean energy evolution. Solar and wind also continue to see exponential cost reduction. A net zero emission global economy can certainly be realized in our lifetimes if we are all behind this change. Chris? Yeah, following on what Junho said, I think we'll always start and go back to asset allocation and portfolio construction and portfolio strategy in general. The key to that over one's lifetime is diversification. We use that same equation as it relates to the production of energy, the use of energy. One fuel source is not going to drive the next five decades or so. We're going to need it all as renewables continue to be built out. So this is squarely something that the government public-private partnership is going to have to rally around, and that net zero emissions goal is the objective. So diversification is important. Objectives are obviously important. And if we focus on those goals over the next three decades or so, getting close to that 2050 net zero emissions uh, objective becomes clearer in focus, in my opinion. Well, that's a, a great and very optimistic note to end on. So Junho and Chris, thank you both so much for your insights into this incredibly interesting topic. It's one that we could easily be talking about and studying for years or even decades to come. And thank you all for listening to this edition of the Merrill Perspectives podcast. My co-hosts have been Chris Heise, Chief Investment Officer for Merrill and Bank of America Private Bank, and Junho Lee, Director in Equity Research for B of A Global Research. I'm Candace Browning, head of B of A Global Research. To learn more about our latest insights on the markets, please visit ml.com. And you can sign up for Merrill Perspectives wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. This podcast was published on November 10th, 2020. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment products. You should carefully consider all relevant factors in making these decisions, and you are encouraged to consult with any of your professional advisors. Any opinions or other information correspond to the date of this recording and are subject to change. The views expressed are not necessarily those of Bank of America Private Bank or Merrill. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or any recommendation from any Bank of America Private Bank or Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith entity to the listener. The information is general in nature and is not intended to provide personal investment advice. The information does not take into account the specific investment objectives, financial situation, and particular needs of any specific person who may receive it. Investors should understand that statements regarding future prospects may not be realized. Asset allocation, diversification, and rebalancing do not ensure a profit or protect against loss in declining markets. Investments in a certain industry or sector may pose additional risk due to lack of diversification and sector concentration. Bank of America, Merrill, their affiliates, and advisors do not provide legal, tax, or accounting advice. Clients should consult their legal and or tax advisors before making any financial decisions. 
B of A Global Research is research produced by B of A Securities Inc., B of A-S, and or one or more of its affiliates. B of A-S is a registered broker-dealer, member SIPC, and wholly owned subsidiary of Bank of America Corporation, B of A Corp. The Chief Investment Office, CIO, provides thought leadership on wealth management, investment strategy, and global markets, portfolio management solutions, due diligence, and solutions oversight and data analytics. CIO viewpoints are developed for Bank of America Private Bank, a division of Bank of America N.A., Bank of America, and Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated, MLPFNS, or Merrill, a registered broker-dealer, registered investment advisor, and a wholly owned subsidiary of Bank of America Corporation. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated, also referred to as MLPFNS, or Merrill, makes available certain investment products sponsored, managed, distributed, or provided by companies that are affiliates of B of A Corp. MLPFNS is a registered broker-dealer, registered investment advisor, member SIPC, and a wholly owned subsidiary of B of A Corp. Bank of America Private Bank is a division of Bank of America N.A., member FDIC, and a wholly owned subsidiary of B of A Corp. Investment products are not FDIC insured, are not bank guaranteed, and may lose value. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither Bank of America Private Bank or Merrill nor any of their affiliates make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. And any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. Copyright 2020 Bank of America Corporation. All rights reserved.